Hey there, thank you so much for joining us today on the Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. Today it's a simulcast with our friends from Headline Books and their Zoom into Books program where they give us the opportunity to talk to award-winning authors. And we've got one today, a reader's favorite gold medal award winner for his latest environmental legal thriller, Strange Fire. It's the third in his Mike Jacobs series. If you love legal thrillers, you're going to love this conversation. My buddy Joel Burkett joins us today from his palatial estate somewhere in central Pennsylvania. Mr. Burkett, congratulations on that win. Thank you. And I have to say that uh, uh, Kathy really kept that uh, uh, close to her vest because Till she said it a minute ago, I didn't realize, I didn't know that I'd won the gold medal in that uh, contest. And it's a prestigious award, and I'm pretty happy about that and surprised. So we're all surprised simultaneously and happily surprised. So thank you. I love that. Kathy Teets, the publisher of Headline Books, uh, keeps it under wraps until just before the broadcast. Gold medal award winner for the reader's favorite. And uh, the book is Strange Fire. It's the third in a trilogy about this young, ambitious attorney, Mike Jacobs, who likes to right wrongs in the uh, in the environmental world. And uh, you've been writing these books for a while. Does the character of Mike Jacobs change during the span of the books from when you, you wrote the first one, Drink to Every Beast, to this new one, Strange Fire? Let's say Mike evolves, Mike grows up, as all of us have done. And you know, Mike's at an interesting point in his life. He, we, we start out with Mike right after he's uh, joined Pennsylvania DEP as a 25-year-old lawyer, and we follow him through the three books, and by Strange Fire, he's now 29. So he's grown both as a human and also as a lawyer. So he doesn't change drastically, but he grows, and that's something that's part of what uh, we authors like to call the arc of the story. DEP is what for folks who are going, what, what does that mean? DEP? DEP is the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. And my DEP is a fec- fictional uh, DEP. And just like uh, when James Patterson is writing a book about the District of Columbia Police Department or the uh, Metropolitan Police Forces, it's sometimes called, or as Thomas Harris writes about the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation or Mike or uh, Connolly writes about uh, the LAPD. They're all fictional versions of a real organization. So mine also is a fictional version of DEP. There, there's, there's enough there that if you know Pennsylvania DEP, you would say, oh, okay, I, I think I know what he's getting at. Uh, but it, it is a fictional version. For folks who have not read your books before and may not be familiar with you as an author, you're writing about a young author, Mike Jacobs, a young Jewish author, Mike Jacobs, who uh, does environmental lawyer. law, lawyer. lawyer, correct? A lawyer. Uh, you were that guy at one point in your life. Well, you know, Mike, is, I'm not Mike and Mike's not me, but let me just say this. Um, Mike uh, went to Penn State, so did I, so check. Uh, Mike went to Vermont Law School, so did I, check. I worked for Pennsylvania's predecessor agency called the Department of Environmental Resources, and Mike works for DEP, so check there as well. And Mike's Jewish and I'm Jewish, check there. 
the way I've drafted Mike is, uh, now understand I'm a little bit older than 29 now, uh, but Mike is about my physique when I was in my mid, mid and late 20s. So check again on that. But uh, Mike is, is distinct from me, and, but there's certainly some of my DNA in Mike. There, there's no doubt about that. But there's also DNA of other people, people that I've admired and people that I've, I've looked at over the years, people that I've known over the years. And so Mike is an amalgam of a number of different folks. But there, I, I have to say that there's a, a fair amount of me in Mike as well and vice versa. These books are fast moving. There's a lot of action, some romance. Uh, and, and I wonder, since you're not Mike, clearly, uh, there, there are some similarities. Specifically as a, an author, how do you draw on what you remember in that background doing environmental law and, and make it exciting and interesting uh, so it becomes a, a page turner in these books? Well, uh, as, as environmental lawyers know, uh, the practice of environmental law on a day-to-day -day basis is not as exciting as Mike Jacobs' practice of environmental law. And when environmental lawyers spend an awful lot of time reviewing environmental regulations and viewing, reviewing environmental laws and interpreting them, writing memos, and even getting ready for a trial, which seems like it might be exciting, and in fact, the trial part itself can be exciting, but to get ready for that trial that might take place over an eight or 16 hour period, basically one or two days, you might spend hundreds of hours getting ready for that trial. And those hours are for the most part, not particularly exciting. So um, what, I, what I do with uh, my environmental legal thrillers is the same thing that they do on television. When you see a police drama and you know, the, the crime occurs in the first two minutes of the police drama and they're all going out for beer at the end of it after they've solved the crime and a whole, you know, year, several years worth of an investigation and, and all the rest of that may be compressed into less than an hour's time. And it's kind of the same thing with my writing is that I'm required really for the sake of the audience and for the sake of myself to compress things. So I try to um, make it clear that there's a lot of work that's going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of time that takes place that's a lot of work that takes place that would be dreadfully boring if you wanted to read about it. Uh, but I, I focus in on the more exciting parts and the more interesting parts. So uh, it, environmental law itself has got a lot of interesting things going on. It, we work with very, very interesting uh, uh, laws. We work with interesting scenarios and we work with interesting people. Uh, but at the same time, there's an awful lot that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, just the day-to-day -day stuff like in any other job that's just not all that exciting. And so I try to compress that all into a, into a readable book that is, you know, usually um, under 350 words is my, is my goal. 350 pages, I should say, which is my goal. Joel Burkett is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast and Zoom into books. His uh, Mike Jacobs trilogy, Drink to Every Beast Amid Rage and Strange Fire, uh, are in fact page turners. And uh, if, if you love legal thrillers, these are, are interesting. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, there you are in central Pennsylvania. You write a book about toxic waste being dumped. You write a book about, uh, you know, the coal mining industry and all the, the stuff that does to the environment. Uh, strange fire has to do with fracking and natural gas. Is it just a big toxic wasteland where you are? No, actually, uh, central Pennsylvania is a very beautiful area, as is most of Pennsylvania. There are 
you know, places in Pennsylvania that are just the best word for it would be sublime. And uh, one of the things that you learn is that you, you take an area that is a gorgeous, beautiful place and you bring industry to it. And the things that happen so far as industry is concerned uh, is not necessarily all that nice. It's not pretty. Uh, but uh, one thing that you learn in the practice of environmental law is that things can be done the right way and things can be done the wrong way. And sometimes even when things are done the right way, it just doesn't look all that nice. The fact of the matter is, using fracking as an example, you can do hydraulic fracturing as the uh, industry would call it. You can do hydraulic fracturing and do it totally the correct way. It's just not going to look all that nice and pretty as it may have looked, as the area may have looked when it was just a farmer's field. Uh, but Central PA is, is, a, is a gorgeous place. Um, you know, in my first book, Drink to Every Beast, the, uh, it really starts out with this idyllic setting, these two teenagers canoeing down uh, the Susquehanna River, and then they come in contact with uh, hazardous waste that was dumped into an old abandoned uh, mine workings, and it's coming out of a, of a mine tunnel. And this is based on a real place called the, uh, the Butler Mine Tunnel where at one time it was the outflow from underground mines up near Pittston, Pennsylvania on the Susquehanna River. And what happened over time, what happened until fairly recently, was that, uh, let's call them bad guys, were dumping hazardous waste down into boreholes that went down into the mine workings, and it was coming out. And in fact, it created a gigantic Superfund site, a hazardous waste site, that took in from the 1970s until recently, within the past year, uh, to clean up. So uh, you have these beautiful locations and it can also have, you know, these very, very uh, toxic uh, things going on around it. So, um, and that's a real contrast. It's one of the things I do try to contrast in my stories is the fact that on the one hand, you've got this great beauty. On the other hand, you have uh, industry and you have um, both legal industry and illegal industry that might be taking place. And I'm trying to contrast those things in my stories and trying to bring it home to people because most people don't go to the Butler Mine Tunnel. Most people don't go inside of a coal strip mine. Most people don't go to a fracking site. I've been to those places. I've spent a fair amount of time at those places. And just like when you read a book about, um, you know, the Rocky Mountains, or you read a book about, you know, some island somewhere, you want to be transported to that place. You sure. want to know what that place is like. And that's one of the things that I try to do is transport my readers to these places so that they can experience for themselves what it's like. In your books, Mike Jacobs tends to be the guy that, that goes after uh, industry. When you were an environmental lawyer, did you ever uh, argue on the side of the company? Oh, sure. Of course. Um, now, when I started out as a young environmental lawyer at the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Resources, uh, we were representing the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, as we call it here. And as a lawyer for the Commonwealth, representing the, uh, the Commonwealth's interest, which often is aligned with the environmental side of things, but sometimes isn't entirely aligned with the environmental side of things. So, for example, if a permit is issued by uh, the Pennsylvania DEP, let's say to do strip mining in a particular area, uh, that permit then becomes the subject of an appeal which may be filed by a group of neighbors or filed by uh, an organization 
the Riverkeeper, the Sierra Club, some other organization like that. So even as a lawyer working for the state or working for US EPA, you may find yourself on what some people would consider the wrong side of the case. Um, but what you're doing is you're, you're trying to uphold the law as, as, a, uh, as a lawyer working either for DEP or for EPA or for the Department of Justice. And like I said, not that may not be what most people would consider to be the environmental side of the case. In private practice, uh, uh, probably the vast majority of my clients were industry. And one of the things that you try to do uh, when you're working with your clients is to make sure that they abide by the law. I mean, the clients are coming to you as a lawyer and asking you to help them to comply with the law. One of the things that, um, that really only a small number of people would be intimately aware of is the fact that the environmental laws are very, very complicated. And in order to do things the right way and not run afoul of the law, companies come to environmental lawyers all the time and ask for our advice so that they can, uh, you know, so that they don't, they don't end up violating the law. They don't end up, end up getting penalized. They don't end up getting their permits pulled. So yes, we, in private practice, for the most part, environmental lawyers are representing industry. Now I also represented some environmental groups when I was in, in private practice. And many environmental lawyers that I know also represent environmental groups. And uh, some lawyers, I'm gonna say a tiny, tiny percent of environmental lawyers are working entirely on the side of environmental organizations. But that, you could number those people in the dozens, really in, in a state like Pennsylvania. And uh, the vast majority of environmental lawyers are working in private industry or quite a few working for the Commonwealth. Joel Burkett is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. He takes what he knows, his work, uh, his life's work as an environmental uh, lawyer and pours it into the character Mike Jacobs in his books, Drink to Every Beast of Mid-Rage and Strange Fire. Strange Fire is the newest of the three books in the trilogy and uh, just learned today that it won a Reader's Favorite Gold Medal Award. Um, as a, an environmental lawyer, and somebody who knows this way better than most of us, um, companies sometimes are, are cast as the villain in these stories. But it sounds to me like, uh, from what you're telling me, that that lots of times the companies may not necessarily know where the line is drawn when it comes to uh, how to dispose of hazardous waste or exactly what to do to keep themselves uh, environmentally uh, in line. Would you say in the real world, as opposed to the fictional world of Mike Jacobs and your books, in the real world, are they bad guys? Or are they, uh, you know, trying to get it done and, and put food on the table for their own families and trying to color inside the lines? No, you know, without any doubt, 99.9% of the people in environmental, environmentally um, uh, uh, impactful industries, 99.9% of the time, they're trying to get it right. You know, they really do uh, want to comply with the laws. Like I said before, the environmental laws are very um, complicated. Complicated. Yeah. They require a lot of uh, interpretation to just to be able to understand what it is that, uh, that a, a company must do. And typically there are, a number of different environmental um, 
consultants and environmental specialists who are working to assist a company. And again, it would depend on how complicated the situation is. On something relatively simple, like let's say development near a wetland. So you're not allowed to put most development in wetlands. That's, that's illegal to do that under that's a number a no -no. of different state laws. But you need a biologist, you might a botanist, you might need a geologist, you would need all of those specialties uh, and the company would either employ them directly or would uh, contract for services for that. Each company has a uh, health and environmental and a safety specialist who focuses on environmental issues for the company. Again, keep them in compliance. And then they would also likely retain an environmental lawyer to help them interpret the laws and to work with the other consultants uh, to make sure that whatever uh, uh, activity it is that they're doing is, is, uh, is complying with the law. So again, if you're looking at, uh, I'm gonna say a relatively simple thing such as development near a wetland, that, that might have involved in it easily three or four um, consultants and specialists, even more depending upon how complicated that is. And that's a relatively simple thing. And I'm going to say one thing I've seen over the years is that very often there's a huge difference of opinion. When you bring in the EPA, you bring in the Army Corps of Engineers, you bring in Pennsylvania DEP, they may have a different view of things than the consultants. And uh, I've seen battles between the consultants and the agencies where the agencies say, no, you drew the, long, the line in place, and the consultant's saying, no, you're wrong, you're being overly aggressive in terms of your interpretation. And, uh, and so it, it can end up being a pretty big battle. But, but keep in mind, the companies really don't prosper by violating the law. It, it seems, I don't know, maybe uh, counterintuitive to people who don't work in this area, but the fact of the matter is that the companies um, may end up paying gigantic penalties. They may find that their development, whatever it is that they're doing, uh, has, to be, has to be pulled out of the ground and they've got to restore the area and they've got to bring it back to the way it was beforehand. And there may be uh, civil fines involved in that. There may be criminal fines. In Pennsylvania, we have a very aggressive attorney general and he's gone after a number of companies that have had environmental uh, violations. And nobody wants to be uh, the recipient of a grand jury indictment. Nobody wants to potentially go to jail for violating environmental laws. So, like I said, most companies, the vast, vast majority of them do want to comply. There often are differences of opinion between what the agencies say and what the uh, consultants say. And uh, uh, then uh, the other thing too is that most companies are not interested in paying hundreds or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of civil penalties or the prospect of criminal violations. So the fact of the matter is, uh, my experience is that the vast, vast majority of the companies do want to comply, and there are differences of opinions uh, between all of these consultants and technical people. Tough to keep it all straight. That's why we got guys like Joel Burkett around, the environmental lawyer who writes legal thrillers that focus on the environment. Uh, and there's a trilogy of them, Drink to Every Beast, A Mid-Rage, and the latest, Strange Fire, a gold medal award winner from Reader's Favorite, Pick them up from Headline Books, the publisher, online at Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Um, did you feel when you were writing these books any sort of uh, moral uh, obligation to, to, to get the word out on, on these bad things that are happening in the environment and how it impacts the climate? Or at the end of the day, 
Are you just trying to write a good book that people want to take to the beach and read and, and enjoy? Where, where does that come from internally for you? Where do you fall on all that? A little of both, Bert. Okay. And right. uh, you always manage to find, you always manage to find, you know, the, the, the space between the, uh, the two big blocks. And, and that, that's one of those spaces. So yes, um, on the one hand, I want uh, people to know about what's really going on you know, out in, in the world in terms of these environmental issues. I want to try to present that in a way that's understandable to people. For the most part, in a lot of these cases, whether it's coal mining or whether it's uh, hydraulic fracturing or fracking, uh, there are people on both sides who have, you know, goodwill and good intentions and uh, believe very, very strongly in the things that they're doing, believe that what they're doing is exactly the right thing to be doing. I know many, many people who are involved in uh, the energy industry who believe that, but for what they're doing, we'd all be sitting in the dark and and you know, and, and lighting bonfires to keep ourselves <laughs> amused at night. And I know many, many people in uh, you know the environmental world who uh, believe that we really need to focus on renewables and get away from uh, fossil fuels. And you know. I have my personal opinions regarding those issues, but the fact of the matter is you, you can't say that one is inherently right and, and the other one is inherently wrong or evil. Uh, and what I try to do, what I particularly try to do in both, uh, both Mid-Rage and Strange Fire is to present both of those sides. Now in my first book, Drink to Every Beast, it, what, what happens in Drink to Every Beast is inherently evil. That's dumping, illegal dumping of hazardous waste into a river. That's just wrong and criminal. Uh, but in Amid Rage, I try to present both sides of the coal mining issue. Uh, although the, the one coal mine operator is kind of psychotic, but, um, but I do have a lot of characters in that story. Uh, people who work for the department who are very strong believers in coal mining. Uh, the lawyer, some of the lawyers who represent uh, the coal industry who believe very strongly in, in the correctness of what's going on. And I have people on the other side, the neighbors, environmental groups and the like, people who uh, believe the opposite. So I, I try to present all of that. And the same thing in Strange Fire. I have you know, people who believe strongly that uh, fracking is absolutely the most evil thing that there ever was. And then people who believe that it's one of the things that's keeping us, uh, you know, keeping us warm at night and providing electricity for us uh, during the, uh, you know, during the year round. And, um, you know, they believe very strongly that it's the right thing to do. So uh, I try to present both sides. And the other thing I try to do is I really do try to educate my audience. And that's something that I've worked very hard on. The hard thing is to do it in a way that, uh, doesn't bore the reader. I want readers to understand the, uh, the science of what's going on, but to do it in a way that is interesting. So, um, my best example would be a Tom Clancy novel. Right. Tom Clancy, you know, the great uh, thriller writer, took something that could have been so inherently boring. How does the nuclear submarine work? Could, you know, if you look at the nitty-gritty details of how a nuclear submarine works, you probably couldn't find something more boring than that, or sonar, or radar, or these other things. It's just, it's physics, it's science, it's engineering, and those are very, very inherently boring things. But he wrote his novel in such a way that he educated people. You read uh, The Hunt for Red October, for example, and you're going to learn a lot about engineering and about uh, all of those different uh, activities. And guess what? He sold almost 5 million copies of that book and still selling. 
and they made a, a well-known and highly regarded um, uh, movie, The Hunt for Red October, and it's it's been unbelievably popular. So it can be done. You look at uh, other writers, um, uh, Jurassic Park, you look at uh, Steve, Cri uh, Steve uh, Michael Crichton, yeah. Michael Crichton, uh, who wrote that, and Michael Crichton, who wrote a number of other books about incorporating medicine into um, his stories. Again, the technical details of some of these medical issues, but done in a way that it entertained people. But when you were done reading the book, not only did, were you entertained, but you learned something as a result of that. Uh, other great writers, uh, Patterson does this all the time in his stories. And so many other writers do the same thing as well, trying to educate uh, their readers uh, in addition to entertaining them. And, and that, if I have to say, um, that's probably the thing that I feel is maybe the most difficult thing to do is to, is to take a complicated subject and to make it interesting and, and not preach down to people, but to try to present it in a way that it's like it's like the best teacher you ever had. We all had that person, whether it was in, in uh, uh, high school or college, we all had that person, that extraordinary teacher, that extraordinary professor who just, you just looked forward to that class because that teacher was just the best one you ever had. And, and he or she just, you know, made, you know, whatever the subject was, just come alive for you. And that's what I'm trying to do in my stories as well is to make the the scientific and the engineering parts come alive for the readers. I wonder, uh, growing up in, as you know, Joel, in, in the uh, coal mining town in the mountains of West Virginia, what's your take on the objectivity of uh, Department of Environmental Protection people? You know, how do you know that when they roll in that they're not, you know, so far, uh, you know, to the left that, that they, as you said earlier, think inherently all coal mining is evil and no matter how good a job uh, the mines do, you know, the IMSH inspector is just going to shut them down. Uh, so w what about uh, objectivity in these governmental agencies? What did you see as a lawyer there? Well, understand, I worked um, in, in environmental law for over 40 years, and I saw the agency transform over time. And mining is a really good example of how the agency transformed. So that when I started working, uh, actually, my first uh, work when, that I did for Pennsylvania DER uh, when I was there in 1980 was uh, in the mining program, the surface mining program. And at that time, the vast majority of people who worked for Pennsylvania DER in the mining program were actually former miners themselves. People who had worked in the mining industry for 10, 20, 30 years and then went to work for the agency. So almost all of those people had a very strong pro-industry bias. But you know what? They were the same as the cop on the beat. And my experience with most of them was that even though they came from industry, even though they knew the industry inside out, uh, they were they were the cop. You know, they were the law and uh, they recognized that uh, adherence with the law was the thing that made uh, sort of leveled the playing field so that if you had some companies that as most companies did, that were trying to comply with the law. It was very unfair to these companies that, you know, set the bar up here and the bar was complying with the law. Very unfair if you had other companies that were down here not complying with the law because they might have been, you know, saving a few bucks by not complying with the law. So uh, those those old time mine inspectors and old time permit people and district mining managers, you know, they were you know, they really looked at themselves, you know, like, like the cop on the beat and their job was to enforce the law. 
over time, how the agency has changed is that uh, today you probably have relatively few people who came out of industry, and most of them now have uh, degrees in environmental science. So they may have gone to college at West Virginia University or Penn State University or, or Lehigh or some other school like that, and gotten themselves degrees in environmental science and biology in, uh, in any one of the environmental fields, and now they're working for the agency. And while their inherent bias may in fact be different, they may be more environmentally conscious, the reality of it is they still look at themselves as the cop on the beat, and they still look at their job as enforcing the law. And I'm going to say the 99% of them recognize that the laws are very complicated and that at times companies are not going to be able to comply with all of the laws, but that it's very important for the bar to be the same for everybody and that not any company, you know, gets a financial benefit by not complying with the law, because if they don't comply with the law, then they're going to, they're going to uh, be able to do things more economically perhaps than a company that does comply with the law. So their job is to enforce the law. And, they're, they, and they really do look at themselves as the cop on the beat. So um, I, I don't believe, after having worked with the agency and seen it change over 40 years, I, I, I never believed anybody who said, oh, the agency's against industry. It's just not the case. The agency is trying to enforce the laws, and that's what they, that's what they do. And that's, that, you know, I'll, I'll stand up with anybody who believes otherwise. And, and it's like anything else. You can always find a person who, um, you know, isn't like that. But... The, certainly the agency does not look at themselves as out there to kill an industry. They're there to regulate the industry and to make sure that the playing field is a level playing field for all companies. We're talking environmental law and environmental legal thrillers with uh, award-winning author Joel Burkett, Strange Fire, Mid-Rage, and Drink to Every Beast are his trilogy of, uh, of books that uh, have the uh, Mike Jacobs character, perhaps loosely based on a young Joel Burkett. Uh, Joel is an award-winning author, uh, Next Generation Indie Book Award winner, and we just learned today a gold medal winner for his latest book from reader's favorite, Strange Fire. So pick that one up. Uh, pick up all three and, and check them out. Um, at the end of August, Joel, in Jackson, Mississippi, there was a, a horrible water crisis. There's no water uh, that, that you can drink or shower or bathe in. Uh, you hear these stories, and and other environmental issues, and, and you especially, I would imagine because it's your life's work, are acutely attuned to them. And yet, clean water and clean air and things that you would think there would be no argument over have become this political lightning rod where people fight like crazy about things that, that one a generation ago would probably have never thought would come to this. Why is it? Why has uh, the environment become so politically charged? I don't know the answer to that question. I do. I, I have some thoughts and I'll, I'll talk about them. I do know that you talk about the Jackson, Mississippi situation. That's actually been going on for a long time and it's just gotten worse and worse. And it's now coming to the uh, public's attention. Uh, and other situations like Flint, Michigan, for example, a criminal situation where, um, you know, people in Flint, Michigan allowed uh, the water supply to become contaminated and Jackson, Mississippi, where the water supply has just deteriorated so much uh, that it's not drinkable or even usable. Part of the problem so far as infrastructure is concerned 
is the huge cost of infrastructure. I was involved in working with a municipality in Pennsylvania, and they had an aging uh, uh, wastewater treatment plant, and they had to fix it. They were under a consent order and agreement from Pennsylvania DEP to fix it. The problem was the number of people who lived in that community had declined over the years. And so it was, it was not in a great part of Pennsylvania. You, were, you know, I was talking earlier with you about, you know, the, the wonderful and glorious and pristine areas of Pennsylvania, which is much of the state, if not most of the state. Uh, but this was not one of those pristine areas. This was an area in the middle of, uh, the, you know, a vast area of strip mining. And they had seen their population decline precipitously over the years. So there are fewer and fewer people to fuel the tax base and fewer and fewer people using water and uh, the sewage facilities. But the cost of fixing that facility never went down. It still cost, um, if I remember correctly, it was still $25 million to fix the facility. They looked into buying a new facility. In other words, just scrapping that old facility and putting in a brand new one, the cost, $25 million. And this is in a community where they didn't have $25 million. And I remember talking to the guy who was the regional director for DEP at the time and, and talking with him about this. And he said, Joel, do you know how many of these facilities I have right now in, this is the northeastern part of PA. He said, I've got dozens of facilities like this in small communities where the, you know, the facility was built in the 1970s and now it's 25, 30, 40, 50 years later, and the population has declined, and, uh, but the people still using the facility are causing it to contaminate uh, the, uh, the streams. Or, you know, drinking water. Drinking water is a huge issue. Nobody wants to drink polluted water. And these should not be political issues. Part of the problem is that they're economic issues. And I think that, um, you know, when you, when you talk about a facility, this is probably already five years ago, that five years ago was going to cost $25 million to either fix or replace. Today, it might be $30 million, you know, given the changes in, uh, you know, inflation and other factors. And the question is, where's that money going to come from? It's not going to come from the people who live in that community. The ones who, who stayed are not wealthy individuals. It's a very poor and rural part of Pennsylvania. And bear in mind what that district uh, manager told me was he had dozens of facilities just like that. So part of the problem is money and nobody wants to be uh, disposing of uh, sewage into a stream that's contaminated. Nobody wants to be drinking water that's contaminated. Now, why is it that these issues have become so politicized? I'm not sure. Um, when you look back and a good marking point is Earth Day. And Earth Day um, took place in 19, 1972, I believe it was. And um, at uh, Philadelphia's Earth Day um, celebration, one of the speakers was uh, the Republican senator from Pennsylvania. And the same thing in New York City. One of the speakers was the Republican senator from uh, New York State. So you had, you know, uh, both Republicans and Democrats who both, you know, showed up at these events to support uh, protection of the earth, to, to support, um, uh, you know, conservation. And I, I think that there's another thing going on and that has to do with uh, the question of so-called over-regulation. So I, I think that there are people who believe that 
industry would be much better off if there was much less regulation of those industries. The problem is that do you want to be the guy who gets his drinking water somewhere below, you know, that that sewage treatment facility that's that's not working properly because we loosened up the regulations and now they're permitted to dump a lot more whatever into the stream. You don't want to be you don't want to be in that community that's accepting water from that stream that is contaminated. Likewise, if you're if you're living in rural Pennsylvania near a strip mine, you don't want to be in a situation where uh, your streams are contaminated because we've loosened up the regulations. You don't want to be um, downwind from a uh, power plant um, that now can emit a lot more into the environment than it used to be able to emit because we've loosened up the regulations. I mean, it's it just doesn't make any sense to me because I can't imagine that people would want that. Um, but it has become a political issue. It seems like at some level, it seems like a um, I don't know, like it ought to be uh, logical that if if we're holding back industry and, and the way to unleash industry is to uh, loosen up these regulations, it seems like there's something commonsensical about that till you think about the next step. And that is, if you're the guy downwind, you're the guy downstream who's taking that air, who's breathing that air, who's drinking that water. Do you want that? I, I can't imagine that anybody would. A Republican, Democrat or independent, nobody wants to drink or breathe that stuff. So um, I think that there's a, a, I don't know, I think that there's a, 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 a kind of a political mantra that says let's deregulate, but on the other hand, when you start thinking about what the effect of that deregulation is, you, you, nobody really wants that. Our guest is Joel Burkett. He is the uh, award-winning, gold medal award-winning author of his latest book, Strange Fire, reader's favorite gold medal award winner. John Grisham very famously wrote uh, and continues to write legal thrillers. You write these environmental legal thrillers. Um, and and now you're kind of, you know, as an award winner, you're right there with Daniel Valdacci and the, and the John Grishams of the world that write these books. Michael Connolly writes The Lincoln Lawyer. Um, could you write these books if you didn't know what you know? I mean, can this stuff be made up or is this the culmination of your life's work and then you make it interesting and sexy for the reader? Well, um, let me say that I, I think that a good writer should be able to do research and should be able to research these things. But one of the things that I bring to my environmental legal thrillers is really a lifetime of experience and a lifetime of, of uh, understanding the lingo and understanding uh, what's really going on behind the scenes. And, you know, and I, and I, <laughs> I, I used to work with some very, very talented uh, criminal lawyers and I was not a criminal lawyer. I, I got involved helping out on environmental criminal issues from time to time. But I'll never forget a meeting I went to with a guy who had been a former assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, he's now a judge, actually. And we were meeting with somebody in the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office. It was over an environmental issue. And I watched the two of them as they were negotiating. And there were some, there were some head nods that went on. I mean, it was like, do you want to, what do you think about X? Head nod. And, and then the, the uh, deputy attorney general said, I, I can consider that head nod back. And it was like, what's going on here? <laughs> and, and when I went and when I talked with them later on, when I talked with my colleague later on, he said, oh, yeah. He said, well, we speak the same language. There's certain things we say, certain things we don't say. And there, there's just 
head nods that take place. And I'm, I'm exaggerating a lot, actually, but you know, it's, it's, it's the things that aren't said that you have to live to be able to understand them. So anybody can write a book, for example, about the president of the United States. There's only one author that I know of who's written fiction about being the president of the United States. That's Bill Clinton. He's written two books with Patterson. And uh, I suspect that Patterson wrote most of it and probably overwrote a lot of what uh, former President Clinton wrote. Um, but there have been many, many um, fictional accounts of presidents over the years. And so you don't have to be the president of the United States to write a book about a fictional book about the president. But I think that there's a certain authenticity that comes to these books when you have somebody who's involved in it. So for example, that's the reason why you find that there are many people who are involved in law enforcement who write legal books, or, or, or I should say uh, books about police and detectives right. and the like. We find uh, a Michael Connolly, for example, who's a journalist, but he, his beat was the legal beat in Los Angeles. And so he really got a, a firsthand um, knowledge. He saw those courtroom battles and he was involved in it so that, you know, when he started writing the Lincoln Lawyer series, you know, he uh, absolutely understood what was going on in, uh, in the courtroom and other people too who are, you know, who come from those areas. We talked about Michael Crichton before, and he wrote a number of books uh, before his passing that involved the medical uh, establishment. And he, of course, was a, an MD. And I know a number of very, very fine uh, writers who are uh, medical doctors and others who are lawyers or former lawyers, others who were cops, and uh, had a very interesting conversation with a guy who's a former Secret Service agent. And he's writing a book about about um, a Secret Service agent involved in uh, some activity uh, having to do with uh, the President of the United States. So there's a certain authenticity, there's head nods, there's winks that take place that you that that the rest of the world wouldn't pick up on, that wouldn't even necessarily be, be written uh, in a textbook somewhere. But if you live it, you understand it. And that's that's one of the things that I think I try to bring to my books. You're a retired attorney, now you're writing full time. Which one's more fun? Oh, more fun? On a day-to-day -day basis, for me, the writing is definitely more fun. Uh, there were times as an environmental lawyer that I had great fun doing some of the things that I did. And, uh, you know, whether that was in a courtroom, examining a witness, cross-examining a witness, um, going to, I mean, I visited uh, many, many strip mines. I visited an underground mine. I visited a number of frac fracking sites. I visited dozens of different kinds of uh, industrial facilities over the years. And they were all fascinating and interesting. And there were times that I, I said to myself, I, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. Right. Um, but you know, it, it was fun and I enjoyed doing it. But you remember that boring part that I told you about? So if the boring part is like this, and then the exciting fun part might be like that. So that's, you know, that, that was the thing with, uh, with being a lawyer is that there was a lot of non-exciting, uh, non-fun parts. Um, but Good I Good that I you left all that out of the career. books. You just leave all that out. You don't <laughs> need books. I, I allude to it. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, as a writer, there are a lot of non not fun parts as well. Right now, I'm editing a book that I wrote, and it's it's tedious. I mean, it's looking for commas. It's looking to, you're saying, okay, I'm using this word. Can I use a better word? And um, and that can be tedious trying to, to figure that out. And and this and it's very, very slow moving. I'm 
I'm working on it right now. I've got a draft of the book here. I'm probably about halfway through the editing part. And, uh, and it's taken weeks so far just to get through the editing part. And when I'm, when I'm done editing, I'm going to go back and edit it again. So it'll be the easily the fourth or fifth time that I've edited the book to get it to the point where I now think that it's presentable. So I mean, that to me is not the most fun. The most fun thing to me as a writer is being creative and, and having these characters actually talk to me. I, have, I wake up sometimes and Mike Jacobs has, has been talking to me for hours in my sleep and I'll get up and I'll just run up to my writing room here on the third floor of our house and I'll, I'll just write down what, I, what he said or some other character. And, or I have a, a little notebook that I keep by the side of my bed and I'll, I'll scribble out uh, the things that I, um, you know, I, I was dreaming about. So to me, that, that's great fun. It's, it's all fun. And, uh, and, I, and I enjoy doing that part. That, that, the creative part to me is 100% fun all the time. The, the business part, you know, the, the marketing part, all of that can be enjoyable at times, but it's, it's not nearly as much fun as the writing part. I got to tell you, though, if, listen, if, if characters in your book start talking to you too much, there's probably a medication you can take for that that'll it'll help that uh, get better. Joel Burkett is every writer, Bur yeah. Burke, every writer I know, every writer I know has exact says exactly the same thing. And what you really have to worry about are the ones who write horror and murder stories. Because yeah, no kidding. Say to yourself, where, where, where is that dark stuff? Where did Hannibal Lecter actually come from? You know, what, how dark a mind do you really have to have to come up with, dream up a, 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 a um, cannibalistic psychiatrist? I mean, that, you need to have a dark mind to do that. But Point you know, taken. I, That's a little too much spicy food in that guy's uh, meal. Um, <laughs> Hey, well, that, that brings me to a good point, though. So you, clearly you do a ton of research for these books. You know some of the environmental law. You can't know it all. Um, but do you ever get in there and just as a plot device, you go, you know what? Nobody's looking. I, I'm going to make this up because nobody's going to know but me. So do you, do you ever make stuff up just to make it really interesting and fun to read? I make up lots of stuff in my stories, but not the, not the science and technical stuff. Is that right? Okay. I mean, I'm very, very... I'm very, very careful on that because there's always somebody reading my stories who's going to send me an email or post something up on Amazon, uh, on an Amazon review or, um, you know, post something in a, in a, uh, on a chat room somewhere and I'll find out about it. And you, and you talk to writers, I mean, I don't generally have too many guns in my stories, but you talk to writers who do a lot of uh, police work or write about police or write about detectives or they write about uh, murder mysteries or whatever. And they are very, very conscious of getting their guns right and understanding which guns do and which guns do not have a safety. Because well unto you, if you, you know, describe somebody releasing the safety on the wrong kind of a gun or releasing it differently, and that gun does not have a safety and, and they'll hear about it. Because you don't just hear about it once, but six months later when somebody else picks up the book and reads it and says, oh, he screwed up the gun part. They'll, they'll write about it again and, and six years later. And so you're still hearing about it in, uh, in drink to every beast. I actually wrote part of that story a long time ago before the Houston Astros changed leagues. And I didn't change that up. And so somebody pointed out to me that I had the Houston Astros in the wrong league. So, you know, it, people, people, people watch and people read and very, very knowledgeable readers out there will know this kind of stuff. 
I, I don't know how people write historical fiction, for example, because although the fiction part is fiction, you know, they're, they're stringing together a lot of history. And I admire those guys a lot. You know, the Steve Berries and now Lisa Scottolini, who's gotten into writing um, historical fiction. But all the people who write historical fiction, there's so much that they've got to get right. And, and when you talk to these writers, you know, they just tell you about you know, all the times that they've been called out uh, because they got something wrong, some some detail wrong, that something's wrong with the uh, the outfit that somebody's wearing. Oh, they didn't wear those in the, in the uh, 18th century. That wasn't until the 19th century. So whatever it might be, um, you know, the, you can do all the making up that you want in terms of, uh, you know, relationships in, between people and what people might say, but you got to be very, very careful on the on the factual details. I would tell them to drink to every beast if they have never read any of my books and start reading that because it, it's a lot of action at the beginning of the story. There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, it's, it's teenagers who are uh, going down the Susquehanna River in a canoe who get themselves immersed in toxic waste and and the aftermath of what happens to those people or the beginning of um, of uh, mid-rage when uh, you have these, uh, these psychotic um, um, uh, mine operators who are doing some awful things to a uh, mine inspector or the beginning of Strange Fire where um, you find out that somebody in the woods is shooting at a production uh, area of a, of, a, of a hydraulic fracturing site. And, and these, are, these are exciting books. Um, I, I've been told that my bo books are, are very, uh, the term in, in the industry is filmic or cinematic. And I've been told that my books, you know, really are, are very much that. So, you, you know, you can picture what's going on as you're reading these stories. And uh, there, there is also a very, very uh, accomplished narrator who narrates amid rage in, um, in the audible version of my book, uh, a man named, um, I think it was Burke Allen who narrated amid rage. I love that guy. That, I love that guy. <laughs> And and that and that's an exciting way. If you're tra traveling somewhere and you've got a you know you're going on vacation, you're going to spend the next three four hours in the car, and you want to listen to one of my books. Uh, that one we've tried out to see how that's going to work, and it's a great it's a great listen and read. Oh, thank you, my friend. It was fun to do. Uh, Amid Rage, one of the Mike Jacobs books in uh, Joel Burkett's canon of literature, uh, including Drink to Every Beast and Strange Fire the uh, trilogy of environmental legal thrillers. Hey, congratulations on winning the gold medal uh, from Reader's Favorite. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, uh, our, my publisher, Kathy Teets, uh, just sprung that on me as she was introducing me. So I, I learned it when everybody else did. So I'm very excited about that. Very proud of that. And, um, you know, I, I uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. That's award-winning author, Joel Burkett. Our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com and our friends at Headline Books, who uh, co-sponsor Zoom into Books. Thank you so much for listening. And for those of you who watched online, thanks for watching as well. For author Joel Burkett, I'm Burke Allen. Thanks for being here. Now go out there and make it a great day. Bye, everybody. <laughs>